Hello and welcome to Inside Change. I'm your host, David Callahan. The last decade has seen a surge of social movements and grassroots organizing on the left. There's been Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the Sunrise Movement, the Parkland student activism against gun violence, and of course, the resistance that sprang up after Trump's election, which spurred the creation of groups like Indivisible and Swing Left. Not since the 1960s has there been so much grassroots activism on the left. One sign of that renaissance has been the emergence of the Working Families Party as an important national player in progressive politics. I first became familiar with the party in New York City years ago. Back then, it was a small regional third party, mostly focused in one state. Today, the Working Families Party is striving to build power in 11 states, with a mission focused on creating a strong multiracial working class movement. It's more prominent and better funded than ever before. And it's headed up by a leader who's generating a lot of buzz in progressive circles named Maurice Mitchell. As we discuss in this conversation, Maurice has worked as a political organizer since he was a teenager on Long Island. He first got involved in national work in 2014 as part of the movement for Black Lives. He became the national director of the Working Families Party in 2018. I talked to Maurice recently about the nature of grassroots organizing and about how a third party like Working Families can make an impact in our two-party electoral system. A quick word about me before we begin. I'm the founder and editor of Blue Tent, which features unique in-depth reporting on progressive politics. And I'm also founder of Inside Philanthropy, which covers the world of foundations and major donors. Please visit bluetent.us and insidephilanthropy.com. Even better, I hope you'll subscribe. And with that, let's get started. So hi, Maurice. Thanks for coming on the show. It's good to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about the Working Families Party. But first, I want to start with your background as an organizer. You started organizing as a teenager. Uh, You've been doing this work ever since. And I'm curious about what it's like to build a career like that and what it takes to succeed in that role. Well, yeah, I mean, it did not start off as a career for me. Right? Like, you're right, I started off very young. And um, as far as I could remember, I had these politics. I, I, I grew up in a household that was pretty forward-thinking politically. My parents weren't organizers. They both... Um, they both were trade unionists, right? My, my mom was a nurse, an 1199 nurse. My dad um, was, a, was an electrician. And, um, and they had a political consciousness that was informed by their experience as folks who grew up in poverty in the Caribbean, um, you know, traveled uh, to London in the 60s, met each other, married, um, and in the political context of so many... Um, small Caribbean countries gaining their independence and African nations ga- gaining their independence and the sort of anti-colonial struggle and all of the tumult in the 60s, they developed their, their, their political consciousness. And so I was raised with a lot of that and uh, also just raised, I think, with this pan-African sort of liberation sort of uh, thinking around me and I embraced it. And so when I first had opportunities to volunteer, I gravitated towards the more ideological sort of volunteer opportunities or the electoral volunteer opportunities. When I was in middle school, I volunteered on an insurgent left challenger in my small town, Long Beach, New York, city council. Uh, and um, and uh, I, I first volunteered as an organizer with this student group called the Long Island Progressive, uh, actually the Long Island um the Long Island Student Coalition for Peace and Justice. Yes, the Long Island Student Coalition for Peace and Justice worked on like anti-war, anti-nuclear pro- proliferation issues and local environmental issues on Long Island. And um, and I was kind of like a, a politics nerd. So I ran for student government. I was president of model Congress. I just, I really sort of gravitated to any opportunity I can to sharpen my skills 
in, in my sharpen my analysis for social justice. And it was really my college experience as a college organizer at Howard University, where I, I first started doing like real campaign work, uh, mainly on criminal justice, on prison and jail divestment, on uh, police brutality. One of our classmates was killed by an undercover police officer. Um, and that really politicized so many people on campus. I did my first direct action um, on campus. And then I decided after undergrad to go back home and to organize home. And it took about a year before I stumbled on uh, the Long Island Progressive Coalition, which was a very small, under-resourced organization with a very skeletal staff. Um, it was really me and the executive director were the two organizers um, at the time. This is in the early 2000s, 2001. And, um, you know, I really built my chops on the ground uh, in this very under-resourced organization that had a very broad mandate, the entire region of Long Island. And I was doing, you know, uh, on the ground, door to door, base building, issue based campaigns, electoral campaigns for seven years, winning some, losing some, and really developing that rigor through those fights, um, working mainly with uh, working class and poor communities of color, but um, all communities in the progressive community to, to build that organization and to figure out how to, how to leverage very meager organizing capacity for the most impact. And I still draw upon those experiences as I approach the national sort of uh, context. But it was through those experiences that I went on to do, you know, I think as an organizer, my experience is every time I, I, I noticed a barrier or a limitation to the form, the quality, or the, the amount of power that we had, um, I would try to develop other skills, um, try to grow the power, or try to find new forms of power. So, you know, the issue-based organizing on the very hyper-local level brought me to electoral organizing because there were political barriers. And then the local organizing brought me to working on the state level because, you know, ultimately state power preempts local power. And uh, I, did, I did a lot of time uh, focusing on that. And then recognizing that my particular institution, as strong as it was, needed to be nested in an ecosystem of powerful institutions brought me to collaboration and brought me to organizing organizations to throw down as coalitions and really brought me to the unique role of coalition organizing, uh, you know, in our, in our movement. And then um, it was the lack of power that I demonstrated when Trayvon Martin's killer uh, got off that really brought me to when when Michael Brown was murdered to leave the work that I was doing in New York State, uh, my family, my friends, uh, the my position where I, I ran this collaborative effort in New York, my apartment in Brooklyn, and uh, basically in bed with the Organization for Black Struggle in St. Louis. It was really out of my recognition that we needed new tactics, we needed new forms of power, we needed new movement muscles in order to respond to the to the um, really the, the murder of black people and and uh, the the centuries long struggle for black liberation, and uh, it was through that work that started off with me embedding with the organization for black struggle. Uh, there's a long story, but the short story is I spent a few days on the ground in Ferguson supporting the organization for black struggle, and. I was mesmerized and totally taken by the unique courage of many, many, it was like a lot of people, but many of the young people on the ground doing extraordinary things. That community was uh, organized in an organic way um, and a really inspiring way. And I, I felt my highest purpose would be supporting that community, learning from that community, flanking that community, and bringing all of my skills all the resources, all of the experiences that I had into that fight. Well, that five days turned into five months on the ground at St. Louis and where I was living in the attic of, a, of an activist and supporting the organization Black Struggle. Those, those five months in, in Ferguson and St. Louis turned into the next four or five years of my life, helping to birth 
and build and catalyze the movement for Black Lives to become an international movement. So, uh, Maurice, before before we uh, before we get into that, I, I want to ask you about the movement for Black Lives and how it evolved. Has, it's evolved over the years, but let's go back uh, uh, for a moment just to the to the sort of on the ground organizing work, because uh, what really struck me in in your trajectory of telling the story is that, you know, for the first seven years, you were sort of in Long Island, knocking on doors, doing that work. And, you know, I think a lot of people can't hack that work and they burn out. My first job ever actually was as a canvasser for one of the PERG organizations in New York. Like you, I grew up in the New York area. I worked for NYPERG and I've just found it too hard. I couldn't hack it. And uh, I think a lot of people burn out. Um, So, you know, I, I, I wonder about the challenge of building these networks of organizers and sustaining them, finding talented organizers and keeping them. What does that take? Yeah, well, I, I feel like, I don't know when you got into the work, um, but you know, my first job was at a PERG too. It was at US PERG. I, I was, uh, it's my, my first like movement job while I was in college. And, and you know, it's a pretty intense, you know, I. Like, I got fired, right? Um, now, what I would say is that I've thought about this a lot because I now lead a team of more than 100 people, and some of them are, are, are new to this work. And I take very seriously the um, this pipeline. So, you know, we need to build a pipeline of young people that develop these skills. And I think the contradiction that we, that we hit up against is that, I'll just speak from my, my experience. It took me two years of, of sink or swim, knocking on doors, hammering phones, um, engaging in one-on-one conversations, doing way too much, sometimes failing, before I actually understood what organizing was. It took me two full years of that, nonstop. And um, I kind of feel that we need to take organizing seriously as a discipline. And you need your organizing apprenticeship. You need that, like, that concentrated, you know, roughly two years of, um, of really rigorous organizing where you're engaging in hundreds, thousands of, of conversations. I think canvassing does that. I think canvassing is a, is a proving ground. I do think there's some unhealthy practices, right, that we need to kind of evolve out of. But we shouldn't overcorrect. We need rigor, right? And there's no shortcuts in organizing. But we need compassion and heart. And I think that a lot of those rigorous training grounds from before didn't have compassion and heart. I think also they were very focused on skills and almost devoid of ideology. And ideology is important, right? Because it's kind of like the gospel. It's your reason for being. And, you know, why engage in this really hard sort of like bone hard work? It's to ultimately realize the gospel. And I think that. Yeah, the, the missionaries know why they're out exactly. there. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and we are. This is, this is like missionary work. This is like work. missionary work. And I think that our movement has been too skills heavy and maybe too process heavy and not not visionary enough right and we need to we need to nest that work into the vision but also we need to be more democratic and create more spaces for young people or people who are coming in to have more of a voice i think like there's been a lot of um recent examples of workplaces in our movement unionizing and i think that that's a good thing I think that you know that that is providing more of a balance and more of a voice for for um, you know first year green organizers to be able to, ne- to negotiate what their what their work experience and work life looks like, and I think that that's that's actually healthy. Well, let's uh, just uh, talk a bit more about ideology and that vision piece. Uh, you know, when I got my canvassing job, it was like we're trying to shut down the nuclear power plant. Here's a clipboard. Go for it. You know there wasn't there was not nested in some larger messaging. And even you know as I went on and spent a lot of time in the progressive world, so much is about specific issue work, 
policy gains. Here's the here's the gain we're trying to get, and not a lot of talk of ideology, not a lot of connection between those different issues. Uh, so how do you? But how do you teach this? And how do you how do you spread that that gospel to your own in your own ranks? You have to invest in it. You have to believe in it, and it can't just be a side dish. You have to recognize that ideology is a main course. And I, I think to take a page from the far right, I think the far right really gets that, right? I think one of the things that the far right does, and you know, is um, they have a long arc mission, they have an ideological mission, uh, mission, and and also different wings of the far right. So like the the theological sort of like white Christian identity far right, they have a very deep intergalactic vision, right, uh, that grounds them, right. But also the, the, the corporate sort of non-theocratic side of the far right, they have a radical, a radical ideological vision about property supremacy, um, you know, about, um, uh, uh, about the nature and, uh, of, of, of money and about, for, for them, their, under, their, their definition of t- tyranny, which is the tyranny of the majority, the tyranny of everyday people being able to collectively organize, like they look at that as being anti-democratic. It's a very warped way of understanding democracy, but that is what motivates them. Like the Koch brothers, they really believe in that stuff. That's why they're investing so much of their wealth into it. So I think for us, like I'll just take the work that we do at, at working working families. Like we we invest in ideology by having um, political political educators, right, on our staff that weave in political education in every single thing that we do. So so we're constantly uh, feeding our folks ideology as we do peer-to-peer texting, as we do um, our tactical work. We don't devoid it from tactical work. It's not like, oh, you can engage in political education over here, or you can engage in the tactical work. We try to weave it in. I'll give an example. We are our presence in Georgia, so we were involved in the runoff races re- recently. And... When we focus on the runoff race, we didn't just focus on the proximal tactical need to flip the Senate, right? We talked about the fact that the, the reality that we're, we're engaged in a runoff because um, white supremacists built the runoff system in Georgia to pre- pre- prevent pluralities of black people from being able to aggregate their votes and win elections, right? It was actually a strategy to, to be able to dilute the political power of black people. And so this is not just about a proximal fight. It's about challenging white supremacy. And we talked about how white supremacy and white grievance has been a driving force of historically of our politics. And that motivated people to do the peer-to-peer texting, to do the, the door, like we had people on the ground canvassing. That motivated people and helped them understand what they were a part of. And so that's, to me, how we do it. Yeah, by the way, one other thing about the right is that they invest heavily in leadership training institutions that have million, multi-million dollar budgets, and they invest heavily in judicial judicial work and judicial philosophy to kind of use the Constitution as a, a vehicle to try to push their ideology. So there's real investment there that I think the progressive side doesn't make but needs to. Um, so there's a lot of appreciation lately for the work of organizers, uh, especially their role in flipping Georgia and Arizona. And people, I think, understand that those were long-term efforts. You know, Stacey Abrams, we now know, was working in Georgia for 10 years and, you know, similarly in, in Arizona. So for you, as somebody who's been in this world for a long time, do you feel like now there's more understanding of what organizers, organizers actually do and why they're important and people are waking up to that? Uh, or do you feel like you just still need to do a lot of education work to explain to um, funders and others uh, why this stuff is so important? I mean, I, I think that um, it's a both end, right? When Barack Obama became president, I think people understood organizers existed because he famously came through organizing. Um, I think this intervention um, and the ability for folks to flip Arizona and Georgia and providing it, you know, putting it in the proper context of years of organizing work, I think that that's gone a long way. I also think that what people tend to do is it's really hard for us to learn lessons 
it's just really, I think it, there's a lot of reasons for it, but um, at the tail end of a victory, right, generally what we do is, this, is the survivorship fallacy. Every victory means that the people involved in those victories were geniuses. Every loss means that the people involved in those victories were, were complete idiots, right? But what we know is that sometimes you could, you could um, sort of trip into a victory for all the wrong reasons, and you could lose, but you could lose the right way, doing all the right things, right? And, and so that's one thing that I see people get caught up in. So we're looking at Arizona and Georgia, but trust me, there's amazing organizing work happening in places where we weren't able to flip or we weren't, you know, we didn't get the, the W, which is why I think the focus on wins, on, on discrete issue wins and electoral wins could be dangerous. Uh, the other thing is that generally, and this is, this is true in general, but it's very true with people of color, it's very true with black people, it's even more true with, with black women. Um, we have a very short attention span. So the story becomes Stacey Abrams, right? And Stacey Abrams is like almost like a, like a, like a wizard-like, god-like being, right? Um, and um, the reality is there's a much more nuanced story about a lot of the leaders, uh, many of them black women, who out throughout the years who helped to build that, that ecosystem. And many of the, the um, indigenous, native, and Latinx folks in Arizona that built that ecosystem, it's a much more complicated and nuanced story, but it's, it's not an easy story to tell about how one person bestowed their brilliance on a particular state. Um, and, um, and that, I think, tells the true story of Stacey Abrams' brilliance in organizing, the fact that she organized in an ecosystem various organizations with, with many, many leaders over years uh, to build that. So I feel like that, the nuance story still needs to be told. And I think all of us, we need to develop our sort of um, discernment so that we could fully learn and, and draw the proper, proper lessons from the losses and the wins. This is kind of a broad question, but in what kinds of resources and support do you think are still needed to build stronger organizing networks uh, on the progressive side? Like if you were to go, you know, if one of these billionaires was willing to just start writing checks and like said, Maurice, give me the plan. Like I got, I got, I, I got a couple hundred million dollars to put into this. Like, where should it go? What, where would you begin? I would say number one, um, if you got like billions of dollars, throw out your interest in proximal victories and throw out your, like throw out your desire for wins and let's build infrastructure, right? Um, if we build infrastructure, the result will be sustained wins. The result will be durable power, right? If we focus on wins, like whack-a-mole What's, you know, what's the most proximal win we could get now? We will look back at 10 or 20 years of trying to get wins and we won't, we would not have built anything sustained or durable. So that's the first thing I would share with them. It's like a philosophical thing, right? But the second, I guess, piece of advice I would share is that, okay, now that we've thrown that out, um, where shall we build infrastructure? And I would say the most important thing we could do is build a 50-state robust pipeline of organizers and leaders that are aligned with the progressive vision. Wherever these folks go, and I think this is, you see this in the far right, wherever they go in the ecosystem, um, they, will add, they will add value. And let's focus in places that are under-resourced and under-invested in. So we should focus in the Southeast. We should focus in the Midwest. We should focus outside of the coastal areas that have high concentrations of progressives. We should focus in small and medium-sized cities. We should focus in counties that, you know, are considered Trump, Trump country. When we say Trump country, we're dismissing millions of people. Um, these places are very, very diverse. Even in the places that swing 70% Trump, let's say. But you could look at it two ways. You could say, like, wow, that place swings 70% Trump, 80% 80, 80 Trump. That's, that's Trump country. Or you could say, whoa, in that place where the prevalent culture is a culture that supports Trump and probably supports his ideology and his culture, there's still 20 or 30% of those people amidst all of that that are saying, no, 
I'm choosing a different perspective. How can we support those people? Um, and I guarantee you, those people are, are, are not who you think they are. Like, how can we support them? How can we provide them infrastructure so they could continue to organize, so they could hold the line, so they keep that 30% and then grow it to 33%? We're not trying to flip that, that county in a, in a cycle. What we're trying to do is transform our consciousness and, and our culture. What we're ultimately trying to do, this is what I, I would tell that person, we're trying to develop a new American identity, a new multiracial democracy. So that's going to take a generation. So invest in that generational change. We'll have all the wins that we could imagine because we're shifting the culture. Um, culture eats strategy every, every single time. And I, I, that is so true. If you think about it, if you think about like working in an organization, if it's a political organization or if it's like not a political organization, and you lay out your like one-year plan or your five-year plan and like this new direction, when you put it into action, if you put it into praxis, that's where the rubber hits the road. All the people in the organization are like, yeah, cool plan, but look, I've been doing it one way for my entire life. This is how I'm acculturated to doing it. And the culture drives how people do it. Culture change takes a lot of work. And what we need in this country ultimately is culture change where we could see one another as, being, as having common cause. Then we could do really big things with each other, which is why number one priority, we have to focus on challenging white supremacy and white Christian identity. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of folks, uh, a lot of white folks who do not see the humanity of people of color. Therefore, they can't throw down and do really big things like climate change or demand a broad social safety net because the cognitive challenge of, wait, if I support that thing, then I'm supporting it for black folks and Latinx folks and immigrants and so I'd rather not support that thing, which means I might not get it myself, right? Um, and so to me, it, like, it's not about the tactical stuff. It's about the broad arc stuff and investing in those things over the next 10 years and 20 years. Uh, the last, last thing I'll say is that Donald Trump, Marco Rubio both said it, that the, the, the next sort of uh, path for the Republican Party has become the, the party of the multiracial working class. So... It's our job to ensure that the multiracial working class understands that th their interests are the interests of the progressive movement. I want to come back to that challenge of building a multiracial working class coalition. But uh, first, I want to ask you about the movement for Black Lives. You, as you said, became very involved in 2014. You went to Ferguson. You were a key organizer of the movement for Black Lives Convention in Cleveland in 2015. Now, so fast forward today, it's six years later, we've talked about the need to change culture, we've talked about the need to build infrastructure. Uh, that movement really exploded in the last year, had a profound uh, impact on the culture, at least for the moment. Um, but you know, let me ask you, like, how well do you think the gains that have been made are embedded in infrastructure? How well do you think the movement has done at affecting elections and who holds power in America? Uh, and, you know, what, what have been the strengths? What have been the weaknesses? Where do you think there's more work to be done? Right. Well, I'm very, very proud and impressed with how far the movement has come. Um, you know, it's interesting. One way, one way that you could assess your impact um, and the power of your intervention is the nature and the intensity of the backlash from your intervention, right? So sometimes people look at the backlash and they're like, well, the movement, you know, the, the movement is, 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 not, is not achieving its outcome, but people only backlash against, against interventions that have any power or any weight. So the fact that we're seeing backlash, the fact that we're seeing backlash in Democratic Party circles around, defund the police, the fact that we could count sitting uh, Congress people as folks who are either flanking or part of the movement, like Cori Bush, who came out of the front lines of, of the fight in St. Louis, or Jamal Bowman, who at the height of the movement embraced defund the police and went on to win his, uh, uh, his primary, you know, or Ayanna Presley, who uh, introduced the Breathe Act uh, in Congress with the Rashida Tlaib. Um, to me, those are proof points that, that the movement um, 
is shifting consciousness in ways that are that are lasting. Um, the the other thing I would say is that in the very beginning, people people asked, "Is this a movement or a moment?" in in the in twenty fourteen, people were asking that. I feel like you know, the verdict is is out. This is a movement, and it's sustained for years. If you think about the intervention of, of Occupy, Occupy, I think, made an indelible intervention in the conversation around austerity. Like, I remember Barack Obama was talking from the austerity playbook, and then after, after Occupy, he did a 180 on austerity. And in fact, the entire globe, like the whole, the whole Davos crew, started talking about economic inequality. Right, that that was Occupy's intervention. Occupy didn't last that long. The movement for Black Lives is still ascendant and in its second act. Uh, so I think it's undeniable that it's had a indelible impact on the culture. The other proof point is the fact that in 2014, the the use of the language Black Lives Matter was controversial, right? And what's always fascinating about that is like if you actually say it out loud to yourself. All we're all we're saying there is we're we're just we're just making we're making the complete statement that black lives the lives of black people matter <laughs> simply matter and it's like the most controversial statement you could possibly make right but like fast forward to 2020 you had Mitt Romney saying that black lives matter at a, at a march you had corporate actors like Soul Cycle and whoever else you know writing these essays about about the movement to me that's a um, a proof point that we've shifted the dial now there's a there's a a risk when you're ubiquitous as a movement of, of becoming co-opted right but i think also the the fact that these corporate actors are saying that doesn't mean that they've like somehow transformed into anti-racist institutions but it just demonstrates to me how deep the movement is and the fact that they did the calculus that they wanted to be on the right side of history, and they're, and they're able to read the tea leaves. Now, we have a lot more work to do. Now, this is a 500-year struggle, right? Uh, racial capitalism uh, and white supremacy, um, you know, will, is embedded in the DNA, DNA of our culture and our, and our history. Um, it's going to take a lot of work to challenge those things, but I think it's undeniable that the movement, the movement technically is the largest social movement in U.S. history. Right, 26 million people during a pandemic hit the streets uh, in response to the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and many other people. So, you know, you take all of those proof points. I, I would say that the movement is strong. Movements are always chaotic. Movements are always in conversation with each other, in contention with each other. So when people see folks in the movement, in debate, in struggle, uh, people are like, oh, is the movement... Uh, is the movement incoherent? No, that's the nature of movements, right? So, you know, social movements are very different than, than, um, than institutions and very different than political, um, like the interest of, of electoral political actors. As a social movement, the movement for black lives have, has done two things. To me, social movements, when they're at their best, they render the invisible visible and they render the impossible possible. And the movement has done that. They rendered the invisible cries of black folks in our communities visible for all to see and therefore for, for all to consider and, and ultimately heal and, and, and rectify and deal with. And they rendered the impossible possible, this idea that we could actually transform our consciousness and, and deal with um, issues of racial justice, anti-black racism and white supremacy that have been endemic. The fact that we could take it on and individuals, individuals could, could, uh, use their individual power to do that. That is rendering the impossible possible and moving people from being uh, just sort of uh, subject to their reality to becoming agents of change. Those two things happen at a scale hitherto never experienced. And so I, I feel very, very um, pleased and proud of, of people who I consider my friends and comrades who continue to do the work in the movement. Black lives. And you and you, and you went from the movement for Black Lives to the Working Families Party, and I'm interested in that uh, turn to a, a an institution which is very focused on the electoral arena. Uh, I'm from New York State, so I'm familiar with it. I voted Working Families Party line uh, uh, many times over the years. I remember Danny Cantor, who was always like the champion of the Working Families Party. Uh, at some point, I, you know, I moved out of, of New York. I, I, moved, I live in Los Angeles now. 
I kind of lost track of the Working Families Party story. And then suddenly it seems to have reappeared as this much more robust national organization with multi-state strategy integrated into these other elements of the progressive coalition. And I'm wondering how that happened and sort of what what the strategy is here. And so, so sort of walk me through what the Working Families Party is all about today. Sure, absolutely. So as you know, Working Families Party started in the late 90s in New York. And New York is one of the handful of states that has fusion voting, which allows a political party to cross-endorse the candidates of other parties. So, you know, I could vote for David on the Democratic Party line and the Working Families Party line. Those votes come together and fuse together to, to be David's final vote total. And we built a lot of power in New York State. And eventually, we moved to Connecticut and made, made fusion real in Connecticut. And then eventually, um, uh, we entered a number, number of other states. Now, um, for me, the, where my story meets the working family story is after Donald Trump became president. So I'm in the mood for black lives. I, like many other people, are horrified by Donald Trump um, achieving his victory riding that white Christian identity wave to the White House. And every, every time that I'm in a moment like that, I have to reflect on what is my highest purpose. Um, and when I thought about my, my, my unique set of skills, relationships, experiences, and what was necessary in the movement, I felt that the movement needed to build in the same way that white Christian identity and, and uh, is a solidarity movement, ultimately. You know, white supremacy and white identity is a solidarity movement, the solidarity of whiteness. We needed to develop a solidarity movement that was multiracial in its nature, that was as powerful, more powerful than the white Christian identity movement that Donald Trump had ridden to the White House. So I felt very clear about that in my analysis and that we need that movement needed to be multiracial in its nature. It needed to be grounded in working class people. It needed to uh, have an analysis specifically uh, around anti-black racism. And that multiracial alliance needed to be self-aware, which meant that we needed white working class people to understand and accept leadership of color, understand the value of being in a multiracial alliance. And we needed people of color and black folks to uh, believe um, that they could be part of an alliance that is multiracial, that wouldn't um, subvert or somehow submerge their unique interests, our unique interests as black folks and people of color. And if we could create that alliance, similar to the work that, that I think um, doesn't get enough credit that, that the Rainbow Coalition did in the 80s, um, if we could create that alliance in the context of, this, of, of our politics, then we could build something that could be big enough to take on and, and deep enough that could take on Donald Trump. With the added thing, the added element of, of bringing together labor institutions, grassroots organizations, and movement organizations. Because over the past 10 years, from Occupy to the, to the Dreamers to Movement for Black Lives, movement actors are playing more of a role in our, in our politics. And that's what brought me, that analysis brought me to the Working Families Party. I felt at the time, WFP was the institution best positioned to take that on. If it could, if it was willing to transform, and so when Dan Cantor, who was the founding director, left, uh, my proposition in taking the job was that I would lead that transformation. And so for the past uh, uh, more than two years, two and a half almost years, I've been leading that transformation in the party, uh, uh, bringing folks from the Movement for Black Lives, from organizations like Mihente and other organizations, closer to the party. Uh, staying close to uh, labor locals around the, around the country, um, uh, bringing together the organizing power grassroots organizations, and, um, and being really explicit about both race and class, the fact that we need to t- talk about both uh, with all people. We need to have the same message with white, white folks, black folks, Latinx folks, Native folks. And if we do that, we could build an electoral united front that could have the power to defeat Trumpism. And so that's really the, the, the reason why I chose to leave the Movement for Black Lives work uh, to take on Working Families Party, to build an instrument that could do that and do that to scale in enough places, which is one of the reasons why we're 
doing work in California now and why we're investing so much in Georgia and why last cycle we were in Arizona and um, put so much money in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania um, and why very recently, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work in, in, um, in uh, uh, West Virginia um, uh, because for us, uh, these politics need to not just be a coastal elite phenomenon. It, these politics need to be very real in the lives of all working people. Uh, so two challenges in this, this, this ambitious project you've taken on jump out of me right away. Uh, one is uh, getting white working class people into this coalition. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, Trump won 67 percent of those voters or something like that. Uh, he even won uh, a huge number of voters in, in union households. And, um, you know, there's some there's some line of argument among progressive strategists of like, let's stop trying to get those voters back. They're not coming back. You know, they left the party. And when the Civil Rights Act was signed, you know, uh, in 1965, and, they, you know, Johnson's, Lyndon Johnson said, there goes the South, right? Well, it turns out that there goes a lot of other places. And, um so what is what gives you optimism that you can really make inroads with these uh, non-college white voters who've been so hard for the Democrats to reach? Well, I don't think the Democrats. Well, I, I want to say two things. I have a more nuanced approach to this, right? Oftentimes, and we just need like to me, it's a it's a silly debate. It's a zero sum game. Do we focus on quote unquote base voters in the cities who tend to be people of color? Or do we focus on, on these swing voters in rural areas and in the suburbs who tend to be white people, right? The number one, rural America and suburban America is much more complicated than that. I think a lot of times these arguments are spoken from coastal elite communities that don't have experiences in suburban America and rural America. The suburbs is very, very racially diverse, right? Uh, so, um, rural America actually is very racially diverse, right? Um, rural America is becoming a lot more um, Latinx, a lot more immigrant. Um, there's uh, a lot of black people live in the rural context in the Southeast specifically, right? So I just want to paint that picture and complicate uh, those definitions. Also, when we talk about working people, a lot of times people think working class, they think of like a white guy with a hard hat. They don't think about like um, a Jamaican immigrant who's a, who's a, um, a healthcare worker, for example. But the working class is very gender diverse, very racially diverse. So I just want to paint that picture. But what I will say is that I would agree that the Trump cultist uh, spending a lot of time, energy, and money trying to um, deprogram a, a cultist QAnon person, probably, number one, that's not my ministry. And I don't think that that is an efficient use of time, energy, spiritual en energy, emotional energy. Um, but in every single one of those contexts, right, what you, what you talked about, you said that, yeah, um, you said that uh, they're, they're swinging 67% to Trump, right? Number one, when Barack Obama was elected, like, he, he was able to, to do very well in a lot of these rural counties. So the, the, swing, the swing that we're experiencing, yes, it started in the 60s, but there is even a significant swing just over the past few years. That was a black progressive, right? So uh, what I want to say is that in any of these counties, in any any of these places, you know, these white, non-college people, there's a percentage of people who are progressive. My question is, how do we support the progressive, the progressives or the folks who are continuing to to be repelled by the interest of the Republicans or continue to be repelled by the organizing of white Christian identity folks? How do we support those people and grow them marginally? cycle after cycle after cycle. So we go from 67% to 65 to 60 to 50. To me, that's the question. It's the marginally pushing back on that. If we don't take that seriously, right, then what we're saying is that we, we don't, we don't, we're not interested in, in the Senate. We're saying that we're not interested in state power. You can't only win uh, the victories that we have to win in coastal cities or in metropolitan areas or in college towns, right? We need to contend for people everywhere. And to me, there's young people in all of these, all of these counties, all these districts, all these, Democrat, uh, um, all these demographics who are singing a different tune. 
but they have to be organized, right? They, they aren't just demographically progressive. The, the, the demographics show your potential, but you have to organize those people. And so I would just argue for the idea, like the idea of organizing everywhere. And this idea that we don't have the reason, like that we have to have a scarcity mindset. This is the wealthiest country in the history of countries. We spent billions of dollars in this last cycle. A lot of it just went to uh, television ads and, and digital ads, you know, and like a lot of those buys actually just went to like the second house or the second yacht for <laughs> some of these consultants, right? So it's like we could be more efficient in how we, we resource. We have to invest in organizing. And the problem is organizing, the, the, um, the upside of organizing isn't manifested neatly in an electoral cycle. It takes time. You have to make those investments. Those are long-term investments. Well, the, that's the second challenge I wanted to ask you about was finding the resources to build this kind of national infrastructure the Working Families Party is trying to build and being in all these different places. Uh, obviously, as you say, there's no shortage of money. Democrats raised and spent $8 billion in the 2020 cycle. You know, it flushed $80, billion, $80 million down the Amy McGrath race, just for example. Um so how have you done kind of trying to sell your, your, your message and vision to, to donors and funders? And, and how, do you, how do you feel that they've been responding? Well, I will say that the future of resourcing our movement is in small dollar donations of everyday people, right? It is, to me, the way towards sustainability. And it, the potential is almost unlimited because there's a lot of people, right? Um, I will say that uh, our resources come from a mixture of the small dollar donors and some philanthropists who are deeply aligned with um, with with various various causes, either either the United Front against Trump or you know um, creating a multiracial democracy or what have you. And the conversations that I have are, to me not so much about the proximal, but it's about like, what country do you want to live in, right? Do we want to live in a true democracy, a, de a democratic economy and society? Do we want to live in a multiracial democracy? Do we want to live in a place that is sustainable? And also you have to understand that we're experiencing some existential crises. So right now there are Republicans in legislatures that are attempting to not since Jim Crow, pull back our democracy into the Stone Ages, the legislature after the legislature. So there is an existential crisis of democracy that we're experiencing. We have the climate crisis that is existential for, for humanity. The earth will be fine, but us, it's a different question, right? So a lot of the, and then, and then to me, we have this existential question of our identity. Who do we want to be? And ultimately, our politics can litigate that can determine that, can um, can set us either towards the path of being a multiracial democracy, a path towards being a regenerative economy that uh, creates a, a planet that is that is hospi hospitable and inhabitable to humans um, or not. And and the question to me is, is are we willing to invest in that type of politics that would lead us to, towards that? You know, in the last election, I felt like we had three paths, either, and they're very stark, either the path towards essentially neo-fascism and, um, you know, the Steve Bannon, Steve Miller economic nationalism, a path towards being a, a social democracy, which I think Bernie and Elizabeth Warren was, were, were um, representing that in, in, the, in the race, or sort of going back to normal, the neoliberal path, right? Those were the questions we were faced with. And to me, what I attempt to do is be political education with donors, with everyday people to appraise them. Like, these are the paths. Where do you want to go? If you want to go, if you want to leap into the future and not just go back to the good old days when we weren't faced with the, the, the ugliness of Trump, then bet on us because that's where we're, we're attempting to take our politics in our country. And so when, when I talk in those terms, there, there are a set of people, both high net worth people and everyday folk, who, who, um, who resonate with that, that idea. So last question before we end, uh, what is your strategy for holding the Biden administration accountable 
to the uh, people who helped get him elected? Well, to me, um, accountability is the name of the game. And we, we attempted to hold Trump accountable. Um, and we will hold Biden accountable. I think one of the lessons that I hope folks, progressives learned is that, you know, Barack Obama, he built an electoral movement. And then I think folks in his administration attempted to tame that electoral movement because they didn't like um, sort of the um, volatility of movements. And they wanted the left flank to be super, quote unquote, disciplined. And I think, I think that that was a miscalculation um, because on the right, you had the Tea Party movement. And, you know, their first recess, they experienced what movements do, you know, and uh, that led to a lot of, I think, um, challenges for our politics that we're, we're now inheriting. So if we're to learn everything, anything is that uh, in order for the Biden administration to do the duty, both the things that they want to do and the things that we want them to do, um, they need a robust movement holding them accountable. We can't be afraid to hold them accountable in public. We can't be afraid to dis, um, to disagree with them in public. We can't be afraid to uh, to challenge the democratic establishment. Um, ultimately, to to deliver for working people and to do the things that you know is stated in the Build Back Better framework, right? Um, if we are, if we get too cozy, if um, the access because we had no access to the White House um, for the past four years. If the access um, intoxicates us, then we will fail. And so I see it as our duty uh, to be principled, to elevate when they're doing the right job, and to, to be able to be unafraid to, to say when they're doing the right job, and al uh, also, conversely, to be unafraid when we think that they're making strategic errors or that they're, they're underperforming for working people. If we do that, uh, I, think, I think that that, that framework will ultimately lead to the Biden administration showing up and shaping out um, in, in, in ways that they probably couldn't imagine, in ways that ultimately we're not going to be happy with everything, but in ways that would be much better for working people than, than if we don't. Maurice, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.